It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined for Chronicles of Nania by the man that the show is named after. He is the resident stat nerd over at Gangrene Nation, Elite Sports New York, TurnOnTheJets.com, and JetsInsider.com. He's also somebody that had a higher quarterback rating than Lamar Jackson over the weekend, Mr. Michael Nania. Michael, what's going on? I don't know if it's factually correct that I didn't have a better passer rating than Lamar, but I think a lot of people maybe uh, could have come close to what he did. It wasn't his best game, but obviously a lot of things going on there that weren't his fault. There were a lot of drops, uh, miscommunications. Their O-line wasn't as good. Titans defense was really good. But uh, yeah, it was another fun uh, another fun day of playoff games. Wasn't quite as competitive as wildcard weekend was, but uh, those uh, the Titans upset over the Ravens was really exciting and definitely to see the 49ers come out and be as uh, really kind of bring together uh, their dominant potential after a rough few weeks to finish the season. Uh, they, they look like a team that, you know, is the favorite to win it all. And uh, playoffs have been a lot of fun so far. They, they usually are really great and it's been uh, another good uh, looking like it's going to be another good postseason. So it's been uh, definitely a fun start. Yeah, I agree. It definitely wasn't all Lamar Jackson's fault, although it certainly wasn't his best game. That said, you know that the people in Baltimore were 100% disappointed with the way that the season ended. I'm sure Lamar Jackson will come back strong next season, though. And if you're a Baltimore fan, even if this season was a disappointment, I think that the future looks as bright as it could possibly look with Lamar Jackson back there. And with some of the other great pieces that they have there, too. There's a reason they went 14-2. and As great as Lamar Jackson is, it wasn't only him. So a lot to look forward to if you're a Ravens fan. And if you're a 49ers fan, and I wanted to talk about something involving the dominance of their defense against the Minnesota Vikings, but first, I just want to say that sometimes when I run in the morning, and I do every day, it hurts my joints, and I get really sore, sometimes my back hurts, sometimes my muscles are stiff, and I need something that's going to be able to loosen my muscles up so that I'm not hurting all day long, and if you get something over the counter like Icy Hot or Bengay, it doesn't usually do the trick. But I want to share with you a discovery that I recently made that's helped me a lot, and I think it can help you too. It's called CryoFree CBD. It was developed by Omax Health. It's a non-prescription, triple-action pain relief roll-on, and it's fantastic for taking away that pain I was talking about and making sure that it doesn't come back later in the day, unlike stuff like Icy Hot and Ben Gay that you typically get in the store. I highly recommend checking it out, and I've got a great deal for you too. Just for listening to Play Like a Jet, you get 20% off a full bottle of CryoFreeze Pain Relief Roll-On, plus free shipping. That's right, free shipping. Discount also applies towards any product site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today, enter the promo code OVERTIME, and take advantage 
of this great offer. If you're looking to relieve your muscle and joint pain within 15 minutes and you want a natural, powerful solution that's tested and works, this is the answer to your prayers. CryoFreeze Pain Relief Roll-On. Quick absorbing, scientifically backed formula. It provides pain relief instantly. Pro athletes use it, and so do I, so you know it works. Remember, go to omaxhealth.com today, enter the promo code OVERTIME, and take advantage of this incredible savings. That's omaxhealth.com, and enter the promo code OVERTIME to get yourself 20% off CryoFreeze and a 20% overall site-wide discount. Don't let muscle soreness continue to be an excuse for living an active lifestyle. Go to omaxhealth.com today and feel relief faster. And Michael, when it comes to relief, I'm sure that the 49ers are relieved that Kirk Cousins didn't come into San Francisco and due to them what he did to New Orleans, a very dominant performance for the San Francisco 49ers, specifically their defense. Not only were Nick Bosa and D Ford dominant, but also those guys on the interior defensive line for the 49ers, DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead, they were pretty damn good. So maybe there's a method to the madness there. You get the dominant interior defensive line, you get the dominant edge rushers, and boom, all of a sudden your defense is pretty damn good. They could use a corner too, the way that the 49ers have Richard Sherman. But listen, They've got the defensive line now. Jets just need to get an edge presence, whether that ends up being in free agency or the draft. But, Michael, I think we saw in full display in that playoff game what it means to have a dominant interior defensive line. Yes, you need the edge, but the people that are pretending that you can only get to the quarterback from the edge, that's just not the case. Yeah, for sure. And you saw Armstead and Buckner. Those Both of them made a lot of plays from the interior in that game. And I think, you know, in terms of pass rush, you know, the edge is probably more important, but uh, still there is a lot of impact that can be had from interior pass rushers. And when you combine the fact that they're, you know, probably more, a little more important in the run game as well, you know, they come out similar in value. I mean, again, and the pass game is more important than the run game overall uh, in today's NFL. And that's why, you know, the edge is more valuable because uh, they're the potential of how destructive edge rushers can be versus interior defenders is, generally higher unless your name is Aaron Donald. But we saw in this game, uh, like you said, Armstead and Buckner are one of the best interior duos in the league, and you put them next to D Ford and Nick Boza. That This is why the Niners are the favorites to win the Super Bowl right now. But the Jets are really stacked up front on the defensive line, and I had some numbers throughout the week on uh, just the progression that those two defensive linemen they drafted last year made the season. Foley Fadakasi was incredible in run defense all season. Uh, we don't agree with pro football focus a lot, but they had him as the fourth highest, uh, fourth best graded run defender uh, among interior defensive linemen. So it's positive about the Jets. So I'll agree with that. But uh, <laughs> and his run stop, uh, the number of tackles for loss he had, stops in the run game that was very high as well. Uh, his missed tackle efficiency was really good. I don't think he was credited for a missed tackle in the run game all season. So he was tremendous against the run. And then on the other side, you have the guy who was drafted three rounds earlier than he was. Nathan Shepard had a very poor rookie season, got a lot of playing time, but didn't do too much with it. But this season he really broke out, especially as a pass rusher. Uh, he created, he was given credit for creating pressure on 10 and a half percent of his pass rush snaps. That was 21st among uh, 118 qualified interior defensive linemen. So he did a really good job as a pass rusher. Uh, once he came back from that suspension, he definitely looked um, much progressed from his rookie season. And it, it was something that I was doubting he was capable of because of how old he is. I'm pretty sure he's 26 years old already. So I wasn't sure, you know, he can make that much progression already coming into the league as old as he was, but you know, he was coming out of D2. So there was a big, uh, you know, a steep jump in progression there 
uh, coming over from there to the NFL. And, you know, he did was able to make some strides this season uh, after getting a season under his belt, getting a lot of playing time, too, in his rookie season, which was definitely uh, beneficial. So, you know, as a pass rusher, Shepard is really good. Uh, and run defense, he still has a long way to go, but he did develop from a pretty bad run defender as a rookie to, you know, closer to average this season, uh, a good complement to his really good pass rushing. So you have those two guys inside, and Quinn and Williams, who did uh, have a much better season, I think, than a lot of people gave him credit for. Definitely disappointing if you expected him to be dominant right away, which, you know, it was fair to expect, given his potential, given where he was taken. But still, he was only 21 years old this season, and uh, we were talking about this, uh, before the podcast, but I think uh, his rookie season, Quinn and Williams, was pretty comparable to Jamal Adams. You remember Adams in his rookie season, 21-year-old guy, you know, very young prospect. Uh, but you could see the flashes of potential. Overall, Adams in his rookie season was, you know, kind of average, or, you know, probably more below average if we're being honest, but you could see the flashes. You could see that he was right there, so close to making so many plays. Ultimately, he was victimized for a lot of touchdowns, did miss a lot of tackles. But you could just see the instincts that Adams had and that with just a few tweaks, a little more improvement, that he's going to be making a lot of plays. And then he did end up making that leap in 2018 and then carried that over to 2019. Now he's one of the best safeties in the league. And I think with Quinn and Williams, you saw the same thing. 21 years old, young guy, very raw, didn't play all that much in college, just had the one season at Alabama where he was a regular starter and then comes right into the NFL. And you could see the flashes. He made a lot. He had a lot of really good reps against some good linemen, too, against Dallas, against Pittsburgh, against Philadelphia, had some good reps. So uh, you saw the moments just like you did with Jamal Adams. Overall, probably not quite what you expected, but uh, in the run game, he was really good. We know how elite the Jets' run defense was this season, and he was a big part of that. Even if the numbers weren't so great, he only missed a couple of tackles, I believe, all season. One of the better uh, efficiency rates in terms of tackling in the run game. Uh, and overall, he just did his job really well, kind of handled took on blockers, cleared out space for the linebackers, was a big part of that run defense. And uh, as a pass rusher is where he was pretty disappointing, was close to the bottom and pass rushing productivity among defensive linemen. That's where he could step forward. But you still saw a lot of really good moments. You could see just that when you watched his tape, you know, in college at Alabama, there were just so many moments where he was just so dominant, so much better than everyone around him, even on one of the most stacked defenses uh, in the entire nation, he's just standing out snap after snap with his power, his technique, uh, the things he could do with just other players couldn't do. And you saw some flashes of that throughout the season. So, you know, he dealt with some injuries. He's only 21. He was raw coming into the league. But uh, I think he's definitely capable of doing what Jamal Adams did and just taking those, you know, flashes and just making a few tweaks, taking that experience, taking that progression uh, and putting it all together and making that leap to becoming a superstar in the second year. But uh, overall, you look at the young talent the Jets have on that defensive line. You have an elite run stopper in Fadokasi. You have a really good pass rusher in Nathan Shepard. Quinn Williams has, is already a solid player, but he has all the potential to become a lot more than that going forward. Uh, Steve McClendon, too, doesn't get enough uh, enough attention. He is uh, he had a really good season. He's, he's been good since he came over to the Jets in 2016, but this season was, I think this was his best season because especially as a pass rusher, which was, uh, never something he did well this season. He set career highs in pressure, uh, career high in pressures. Uh, I believe sacks as well, but uh, I know he did in pressures uh, and in the run game. He was just as dominant as he's ever been. Uh, he's a great player. Henry Anderson didn't have the pass rush production he did in 2018, but he was great against the run. So the Jets are stacked on the defensive line. They have 
they really do not have to make any moves there going forward. It's all about uh, getting those edge rushers because the same way that the edge rushers can help the defensive line get them some one-on-one matchups, uh, make it easier for them to produce, it goes the other way as well. When you have people you have to pay attention to inside, it could open up some one-on-ones for the edge guys on the outside. And, you know, that's how Jordan Jenkins got to eight sacks this season. He wasn't uh, Jordan Jenkins wasn't all that good creating pressure this year. I think he was somewhere around 80th in pressures, but he had the eight sacks, which is really impressive and was a career high for him. And, you know, a lot of those were just uh, a product of interior pressure. One of the sacks he had, uh, the strip sack he had against the Bills on the final game of the season, that was a result of pressure by Nathan Shepard. And Jamal Adams was actually in on that uh, as well. But so it goes both ways. The Jets are really stacked on the defensive line. So, uh, you know, if they can find a talented edge rusher, obviously didn't work out with Ja'Kai Polite, but you find a guy with talent and he's coming into a good situation where there are players on the inside who are going to make that guy's job a lot easier. So uh, edge is definitely a big need, but uh, inside the Jets are really stacked on that defensive line and it does have a lot of value. Without what those guys did for the Jets inside, Fadakasi, McClendon, uh, Nathan Shepard, Quinn Williams, Henry Anderson, without what those guys did, the Jets were not going to win, would not have won seven games this year. There were a, a few of their wins, probably the Cowboys, the Steelers, the Bills, the last game of the season, uh, even the Giants, a game they only won by one score, even though they had a historically great uh, performance in run defense, uh, at least two wins and, you know, maybe even three, four wins uh, that were a prime. The run defense was primarily part of it, uh, what that defensive line did. So those guys brought a lot of value, should continue to bring more value going forward, uh, considering the young pieces they have in there. And it's a good situation for any young edge rusher that the Jets do add, uh, hopefully in the upcoming draft. Michael, we're going to talk about Sam Darnold a little bit later because we're going to start the Sam Darnold Project by giving an introduction to what the Sam Darnold Project actually is and then an example of how you went through and graded Sam Darnold game by game, play by play. But before we do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about special teams because I feel like a lot of people don't give that enough talk, and especially with the hiring of Joe Judge as the head coach of the New York Giants, special teams have finally come back into the spotlight a little bit, and people are talking about the idea of special teams coaches becoming head coaches and whether or not it makes sense to go that route. We know that it worked with John Harbaugh. It hasn't been tried a lot. We'll see what happens with Judge. But one of the guys that have been talked about in this regard, certainly on Jets Twitter, because everybody knows how well he's done, is Brant Boyer, the Jets special teams coach. He did a fantastic job this past season, especially considering that he lost his Pro Bowl kicker and Pro Bowl kick returner. Still, though, the Jets in the top five in special teams. There's not much you can say other than Brant Boyer is one of the best in the business at what he does. Yeah, and and the field goal kicking is one area where it's, you know, there's not too much the coach can do there. But, you know, they did, you know, kind of tread water. They found Sam Ficken after everything they went through. And Ficken was not good. He was pretty bad. But, you know, they weren't able to get just get through the season and at least, you know, get enough throughout. And, and, you know, going forward, they got to find someone else. Sam Ficken was uh, not a great kicker before coming to the Jets, and he wasn't with them. But everything else, the Jets were still really good as they were last season. Overall, they were fourth and special teams DVOA after they were number one in 2018. Uh, And in every other facet besides field goal kicking, they were great. Their kickoff coverage, number one DVOA. Kickoff return 12th, punting fourth, punt return also fourth. So in all those other facets, they were very, very good. Kickoff coverage was especially good. I think the longest return they gave up this season 
was 30 yards, and that one came back because of a hold. So they were excellent kickoff coverage. Uh, kickoff return, they were solid. They didn't, you know, I don't think they turned over the ball in the kickoff return game. They were above average there, even if not great. But punt return, they were really good there as well. Braxton Berrios led the league in punt return average among qualifiers, and he did that without even getting a 30-yard return all season. So it's just a uh, really shows uh, his consistency as a punt returner. Uh, because, and that was what he brought to the Jets before coming here with New England and the times he played for them in the preseason with Miami in college. Uh, that's what he did. He didn't break out too many big returns, but he was very consistent getting uh, those chunk games, and that's what he did with the Jets this season. Then in the punting game, Lachlan Edwards was solid once again. Uh, really, the whole group did great in punt coverage. Uh, a lot of different players contributing to that, tackled well. And, you know, the Jets did have those big plays. They had the blocked punt against Baltimore. They uh, took advantage of the muffed punt against New England, scored that touchdown. But really, even independent of those, they were just so consistent in every facet, getting some good chunk returns, both in the kickoff and punt game. Then in, in uh, kickoff and punt coverage, they really did not give up anything big in either one of those units. So uh, they are very good once again for the second consecutive year. And, you know, before Brant Boyer came in, this was a unit that had been really struggling since Mike Westhoff left. The Jets were consistently very bad on special teams and you know even Boyer's first season they still struggled a lot but they took some steps that season then they really stepped forward last year and they continued it uh continued it into 2019 so uh, second straight season the Jets are top four uh in special teams DVOA and if you take out the impact of the field goal kicking which again is something that's not as schematic as everything else and more just reliant on pretty much one player uh if you take out the field goal and extra point kicking their DVOA in the other four facets uh, was tops in the league yet again. So uh, Brant Boyer doing an excellent job. And it is interesting because, you know, special teams does not get as much credit as it deserves. And no, it's not equal to offense or, or defense or even close to being equal to as valuable. But it does matter. And it's not something that gets a lot of attention. And, you know, now with Joe Judge getting hired, like you said, kind of brings uh, some more light back to the value of that unit and the potential of those coaches, uh, you know, elevating up to a head coach level in the league. So, uh, if anyone else, you know, in the league at special teams has the resume uh, to be elevated from special teams coach to head coach, then Brant Boyer is definitely one of those guys. So, uh, again, we don't have a huge sample size of knowing how well this works. John Harbaugh is obviously the prime example of a guy who, you know, elevated from that and turned out to be a good head coach. But, you know, Joe Judge is going to be an interesting test uh, to see if to to see how well that transfers. Just another example to see uh, if special teams coaches can make that leap. And so if he does well, it could open the door for Brant Boyer down the line. But uh, for the Jets, as long as he is their special teams coordinator, they should continue to be very good because just the consistency across all four units, uh, besides the field goal kicking, which again is something they have to figure out from a talent perspective, but the other four units, uh, he just did an excellent job two years in a row. Uh, and again, taking Andre Roberts, a guy who was a veteran, but was never as close to as dominant as he was with the Jets last season, and then was not even as close to that dominant this season uh, after leaving the Jets. So just taking, not really having too much talent. And again, Braxton Barrios, a guy who was cut by the Patriots, uh, Vincent Smith in the kickoff return game, an undrafted rookie. So the, they don't really have elite special teams talent. And really even the uh, coverage units, the blocking units, a lot of rotation there from last year to this year, but still second year in a row, they've been great. And uh, all four of those kickoff and punt facets. So 
Uh, the consistency with uh, what they've been able to do last few years, really impressive. It's brought a lot of value to the team. Uh, it's unfortunate that they wasted all these big plays on great special teams value uh, in two seasons where they haven't been good. If they had this special teams unit, either this year's or last, you know, in 2015, for example, that could have won them a couple of extra games that might've gotten them to the playoffs. But uh, I think Brant Boyer with what he's done these last two years has uh, made as good a case as he possibly could, uh, can for himself uh, to elevate in the league to a higher position. Uh, hopefully for the Jets sake, he, uh, for the Jets sake, he does stick around in that special teams coordinator position because he's been doing an excellent job. And as long as he's there, they should continue to be uh, one of the best units in the league on special teams. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Michael, like you said, there's not much a special teams coach can do in terms of field goal kicking. That's just a matter of luck. It's a matter of whether or not the kicker makes the kick or not. The only thing that you could really pin on the special teams coordinator is his choice of kicker in the first place. So you could maybe credit him for seeing something in Jason Myers that other teams didn't see, although obviously he regressed this season with the Seahawks. And if you wanted to, you could say that maybe they could have found somebody better than Sam Ficken, although I would argue that maybe part of the problem is the fact that the Jets waited so long to try and solve that kicker issue. But even outside of kicking, I would say special teams don't get enough attention. They're very important. They're not as important as offense or defense, but they can make or break a game because when it comes to field position and when it comes to certain plays on special teams, if there are mistakes or there are really good plays, it can really help a team. So I think that it's interesting that Joe Judge got that job with the Giants because now we'll see if that translates or if it was just John Harbaugh as an outlier. But another position that I don't think 
gets enough love the same way that special teams don't get enough love is blocking tight end. Now, Michael, we both know that it's very hard to build a strong offensive line in the NFL because you usually have to use premium assets. It's very difficult to acquire top-notch offensive line talent in free agency because generally those guys don't hit the market. And then in the draft, yes, you can get guys in the mid-rounds, but you have to have a general manager who knows how to draft. And hopefully Joe Douglas is one of those guys, but there is one move that you can make that's relatively easy and not super expensive that can really help the blocking on your team. And it's an under-the-radar position, blocking tight end. A lot of people look at that and say, oh, blocking tight end, what's a big deal? But if you have a really good blocking tight end, he can serve as an extra offensive lineman and really help out in pass protection, which is something that the Jets need desperately. But also, it's something that a lot of teams could really use because, as we said, it's hard to acquire good offensive linemen. It's not necessarily as hard to acquire a good blocking tight end. And if you can put him in there and you can put him in assignment where he can neutralize pretty good players on the opposing defense. That's a very valuable commodity. I think it's something that people don't think about enough, but you put together a really interesting chart here to talk about the value of the blocking tight end and also show the specific value that certain blocking tight ends brought. So why don't you go ahead and explain the chart and then talk about the value that some of these guys brought to the table. Yeah, so I think especially here in 2019, you had two teams really bring some more attention back to the importance of blocking at the tight end position. One of them got eliminated this weekend. That was the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, what those three guys did for them all season, Nick Boyle, Hayden Hurst, and Mark Andrews, they were incredible blocking, and the numbers really backed that up. So the, And the other team, obviously, the San Francisco 49ers, who are still alive. George Kittle was incredible. Uh, another one of the guys who helped them out behind George Hiddle, Levine Toilolo, a veteran who's been doing it for a long time. He's an impending free agent. Uh, one of the guys they listed on the article uh, at Jets Insider of a few potential free agent options the Jets could look at uh, for blocking tight ends. But the chart, it has a couple of numbers. The pass protection numbers, number of snaps and pass protection for each team's uh, tight end group and the number of pressures they gave up and the pressure rate percentage of snaps in which they gave up pressure. On that side, the Jets tight ends, Struggled a lot. They tied for the most pressures allowed, 17 of those. Uh, fourth highest pressure percentage at 9.8%. And the Jets did rely on their tight ends a lot in pass protection, as you'd expect when their offensive line is that bad. 173 snaps in pass protection, fewer than only the Rams and the Panthers. And really, if you look at the reverse order of uh, how often teams are relying on their uh, tight ends and pass protection, is it, it's a pretty decent look at how good or how much teams trust their offensive lines, at least maybe not how good they are, but uh, they're trusting their offensive line because the more that you look at the teams at the top of this list, the Rams, the Jets, the Panthers, uh, the Lions. Uh, so teams that really struggled on the offensive line are the teams that use their tight ends the most. So it's really especially important uh, if you have a bad offensive line uh, to have tight ends who can kind of pick up the slack a little bit and the Jets tight ends we're obviously not able to do that time for the most pressures allowed among any tight end group in the league with the Lions uh, with 17 of those. Then they're even worse in the run game. So also in the chart, there are numbers of uh, each team's rushing stats uh, on rushes directed outside of the tight end. So the Jets uh, were last in the league in total yards and that in first downs, uh, yards per attempt, first down percentage and yards before contact per attempt. The Jets average only 0.3 yards before contact per attempt on runs outside the tight end, which is absurd. And just in comparison, the league average is about 1.5, so the Jets fall well short of that. The best teams in the league 
the Cardinals and the Ravens were both over three yards before contact uh, per attempt on those rushes. But the Jets averaged only two and a half yards per rush on those runs. Picked up a first down only 13% of the time. League average is about uh, 26% on those, so the Jets less than half of that. Uh, and only picked up 11 first downs all season on rushes directed outside the tight end. So less than one per game uh, rushing uh, on runs behind the tight end. And obviously there are other factors here just because the run is directed outside the tight end. There are other pe- plenty of other people blocking on the play at the same time. The left tackle could blow a block, a wide receiver, a fullback, a left guard. Anyone else could blow a block that could lead to these plays being unsuccessful. But the Jets by far are the worst in every single category. Totals, yards per attempt, first downs, yards before contact. Uh, by far the worst in every single category. And when you watch the games and look back at all the stuffs that Le'Veon Bell uh, ran into this season, there are plenty of examples of Ryan Griffin especially, but Daniel Brown as well. Those two guys blowing blocks on the outside, getting beat to the inside, and just giving Le'Veon Bell no options and absolutely just really no opportunity to make anything out of these plays except maybe dive forward and turn a negative three-yard run into a one-yard loss. So really there were just so many plays this season where Bell had absolutely nowhere to go because of the blocking of the tight end. So it is something that the Jets were really bad with this season. Chris Herndon coming back will help. He developed into an average-level blocker down the stretch of his rookie season. But uh, this is especially with the struggles up front. Obviously the Jets do have to uh, work to improve that. But still, I think with as bad as the – this unit was the blocking out of the tight end group. It makes sense for them to at least uh, make an effort to improve it, not just rely on you know the development of Wesco and the return of Herndon because Wesco is very bad blocking as well. It was a disappointing season for him, but he did show some flashes, especially uh, in the run game. It was in pass protection where Wesco really struggled the most, but in the run game, while he was still overall not very good, there were some flashes where you could really see what got him drafted in the fourth round as a blocking tight end, he did have some really powerful moments. Uh, so again, another young guy, even though he's not quite in the level of Jamal Adams or Quinn Williams, but another example of uh, a rookie showing you the flashes that you want to see that give you the hope he can break out going forward. And Wesco did have some of those. So he'll be around most likely uh, in training camp next season. So, you know, maybe he can make that progression and bring it all together and be the blocking tight end that the jets need. But I think they also would be well-served uh, to at least make, you know, just make an addition, give a guy a one-year, two-year deal uh, for cheap. Just get a Levine Toy Lolo, uh, get a Blake Bell, J.P. Holtz. Uh, those are some of the top blocking tight ends potentially out there. But just add in uh, a guy who's, you know, proven he can block at a high level at tight end in this league. Give Wesco that competition. And if Wesco breaks out and proves he can be uh, a young, cheap asset locked up for the next few years and fill this role, and, then that would be great. And you can, you know, cut ties with that guy, not have to worry about, uh, you know, age or having to pay somebody else. But uh, I think it definitely makes sense for them to take this seriously because it's something that really hurt them this season. And especially, you know, until that offensive line proves that it can be really, really good and carry this entire offense, until they know that they've fixed that offensive line, uh, the tight ends are really going to have. Uh, the opportunity to pick up a lot of slack here. They're going to have to uh, really be able to do that if they're going to, uh, if the offensive line is going to continue struggling, they're going to, the tight ends will be relied upon uh, way more than most other teams to pass protect. And then in the run game, also, you're going to want to try to get some outside runs going if you can't go up the middle. Uh, so if the offensive line continues to struggle, that the blocking of the tight ends only becomes more important. Then even if your offensive line is good, because Baltimore, San Francisco, they have great offensive lines, but what those tight ends are able to do only makes them 
that much more dangerous. That's why those two teams were so good this year, or a big part of it, the blocking out of the tight end. So uh, it's a really underrated facet of the game, whether your O-line is good or not. I think it's more important if your offensive line is bad because the tight ends definitely uh, have more responsibility to pick up some of that slack. And that's the boat that the Jets are in now. Hopefully they improve. But uh, I think really the bottom line is that you can't assume Wesco is going to uh, develop. You can't assume Herndon's just going to fix everything. You can't assume the O-line's going to be better. The blocking out of tight end was really bad for the Jets last year, and it was a huge hole, and I think they should treat it uh, as such in the offseason with the way they approach it. And again, it doesn't have to be anything big. They don't have to draft another blocking tight end. All I really think they should do is just go out in free agency and make sure they add someone, uh, a guy like, again, like Levine Toilolo is a great option. A guy like him who's just proven uh, with over a decent sample size in the league that they can produce at a good level uh, at a good level as a blocker. So for them to do that, I think would be a, a good a good value add uh, to just give Wesco some competition and hopefully uh, make some progression in this area where they really struggled in 2019. Michael, they say it's the little things that sometimes make the difference. And the blocking tight end would be one of them. Also, drawing penalties is another. You don't hear about this enough. What you do hear about is offensive linemen who cause penalties, but you don't hear enough about players that draw penalties from opposing teams. And the Jets had a couple of players that did that quite a bit this year. Robbie Anderson led the list, and this is one thing that nobody talks about with him, and that's a big part of his speed. In order to slow him down, a lot of times you got to grab him. So in addition to whatever numbers he puts up as a wide receiver, you have to look at the penalty numbers. Talk to me a little bit about what you found when you went through the Jets in 2019 and looked at who was drawing penalties. Yeah, so I want to go back and look at all the opposing penalties against uh, by the Jets opponents this season and see which Jets were uh, drawing each one of those penalties. And obviously, uh, ones where uh, ones that are mostly not you know, caused by the individual more so uh, than the opponent having any impact. You know, things like false start, offside, delay of game, things like that were excluded. But any time where uh, the opponent has uh, plays a role in those penalties being caused. Uh, any of those were included. So Robbie Anderson does come out on top. He drew, and by far too, he drew seven penalties for 96 yards. Uh, Demarius Thomas and Neville Hewitt came in second with four penalties drawn. Thomas 45 yards, Hewitt 36 yards. So Anderson with three more drawn penalties than anyone else, over twice as many yards. And uh, it's just, again, like you said, it's a testament to his speed. There are so many instances where uh, Robbie just beats someone down the field and they grab him. Uh, to you know, take away the potential of him catching the ball, and especially when he gets held before the ball even gets thrown, because uh, when that happens, you know, those penalties are not nearly as many yards as a pass interference would potentially be. He had, uh, I think, most of those seven penalties, four or five of them, uh, were holding calls. So him winning so cleanly, so early uh, that DBs are just holding him before the ball even gets there, and that's saving them a lot of yardage down the field. He did have a couple of long pass interferences, but uh, he did draw a did draw a good number of holds this season. And like you said, it does add a good amount to his value. I mean, that's 96 yards right there, close to 100. So you throw that into his receiving total, and uh, that really changes the perception of him a lot. I think he had uh, somewhere in the high 700s in receiving yards this season. So you add another 100 on, that really changes the way, you know, he looks in terms of the perception that is, you know, drawn by his receiving total. And obviously every single receiver in the league probably drew at least one penalty and would have some yards to, you know, add on. So uh, everyone, every single receiver in the league would get some sort of boost from that. But uh, even if you look up and down the league, there are football outsiders does have pass interferences drawn for each receiver. They don't 
uh, include holding other and some of the other penalties that a receiver can draw. But they do have pass interference penalties, and most receivers in the league have uh, you know drawn at least one of those. But Robbie had, was near the top this season, even in that. So you know, relative to most other receivers in the league, he still did a pretty good job in this area. So I think it is one of the things that kind of gets lost. Uh, in terms of his value, there are a lot of other things he has to deal with. The offensive line being bad uh, really limits the number of chances that he's been able that uh, when he wins deep, there just have not been enough times where the ball's been able to get to him. And the offensive line is a huge part of that uh, because poor pass protection limits a deep passing attack as much as it uh, hurts anything else in terms of the passing game. And Robbie Anderson has been a big victim of that really throughout his entire Jets career. Uh, starting quarterback being injured has hurt his production a lot. His uh, numbers and games with the starting quarterbacks healthy. Go, you go back to Josh McCown, Sam Darnold these last two years. Uh, when his starting quarterback's been healthy, his numbers have been a lot better. Uh, so there are a lot of things he's had to deal with. And offensive coordinators, too. He's dealt with four different offensive coordinators. Uh, I think seven different starting quarterbacks. So he's dealt with a lot that have made him look worse. And I think uh, these numbers in terms of the penalties he's drawn is yet another way uh, yet another thing that showcases just how much about how much better Robbie Anderson really is than his you know somewhat pedestrian numbers. He averages about you know 750 yards, five six touchdowns the last couple seasons, which makes it seem like he's really not all that good, especially if you stack him up against other number one receivers. But uh, you you put on his tape, you watch him play, you look at some of his best catches, uh, and you take into count take into account all the things he's had to deal with. Add that in for context, and I think it really becomes clear that he's as valuable. Uh, as the contract he's probably going to get in free agency this season, I think he is worth that. And some other takeaways from this penalty list. So Demarius Thomas comes in at number two. Three of his four penalties drawn were in that Monday night New England game. So a little bit misleading because some of those penalties were in one game. But there are a couple surprises uh, on the defensive side at the top of this list. Uh, Neville Hewitt checks in at third. He led the defense with four penalties drawn and he was. Uh, there are a, lo- a few different areas where Hewitt really struggled this season. Uh, in coverage had some missed tackles, but uh, he was really good as a blitzer this season, and that's where all four of these penalties came from. Uh, drew four holding calls on his blitzes, so he came out on top thanks to that blitzing ability. Harvey Langy is a big surprise. He checks in uh, tied for fourth overall uh, with three penalties drawn. Two of those were on special uh, special teams, one for defense. Uh, so that was a little bit of an outlier for him. But Nathan Shepard also ties Lange, uh for fifth on the team, uh, second on the defense, three penalties drawn for 30 yards. And I think it's just another testament to his pass rushing ability. He, uh, Like we said earlier, he was really good as a pass rusher. His pressure rate was extremely good or very good in the top tier among defensive tackles. And all three of his penalties drawn were in the pass rushing game. So uh, he definitely made a lot of impact as a pass rusher. And this is uh, just another uh, – indicator of how good he was in the pass rushing game so uh, beyond those five guys no one else had more than two penalties drawn uh, Jamal Adams was six on the team with 25 penalty yards drawn he had two a uh, few different players had two as well but those were the top five guys who had three or more but really the biggest takeaway uh, is just with the gap between Robbie Anderson and everyone else on the team the penalties he drew uh, his hidden impact in terms of uh, drawing penalties was definitely on a, a different level compared to anyone else on the roster 
Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Michael, now let's get into the Sam Darnold project, which I've been looking forward to doing with you ever since you told me that you were going to be undertaking this massive project where you were going to be grading every single play of Sam Darnold's career so far. So 26 starts. And I want you to begin this by explaining exactly how you've gone about doing this project what's the grading formula how have you been evaluating this because that way anybody listening can understand exactly what the context is here and then we'll sort of begin the project by looking at one game because I want people to get a little bit of a taste of what's to come over the next couple of weeks and months here on the program on Chronicles because we're going to unveil little bits and pieces of this each week so tell me a little bit about the background here what made you decide to do this and what was the criteria that went into grading Darnold yeah so really the reason that I started was I was kind of thinking back through you know what were Darnold's worst what were the worst games of Darnold's career what were the best games of his career what was the best game of his career and you know I was kind of just going through and saying uh, grading all his games out of 10 just based on how I remembered it you know the Houston game an eight you know Giants game a seven uh, the Patriots game, obviously, a zero on Monday Night Football. This season, just giving out these scores based on uh, what I remembered about the game. Then I thought, you know, what if I just went back and graded every single play and then saw what the scores were out of 10 for all these games? So that's what I've been doing. I still have uh, four games to go, the first four games of his rookie season. But I finished up his 2019 season and most of his rookie 2018 season. And uh, it's been really cool to do that because when you go back and just uh, think about your memory of these games, uh, a lot of his, a lot of his, based on the box score that ultimately he ends up, or you, you know, whoever the player is, all, your memory of these games can be largely based on that, and you know, just the biggest plays that you remember from the game, you know, big turnovers, big touchdowns, huge plays like that. But uh, there are so many other plays uh, that are, you know, little things that you forget about. You know, it could be a missed big play, it could be uh, what could have been a, a turnover that you forgot about. You know, a near interception that was dropped or something like that. Things that the box score miss things that slip by you in your memory. Uh, there could be a lot of good throws that you forget about. So uh, that's what I really want to do. Go back and score every single play uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, with 5 being a perfectly average play. Anything above 5 is a plus value play, and anything below 5 being a negative value play, and then grading all of those uh, on that scale. And then I did a few other games for other quarterbacks to kind of get and get a, a perspective of what an average score would be. So then we could scale, or then I could scale that uh, from zero to a hundred with 50 being average uh, and then kind of compare all of his games based on that. So that's what I've been doing, doing some games for other quarterbacks to get that context and perspective on what an average score would be with this scale that I've used. Uh, and then just going back through all of Darnold's games and uh, it's definitely given a good look at, you know, which games were, you know, better than we kind of remember them being based on the stats or what we remember about the game. And some games that weren't quite as good as the stats or our memory uh, would tell it, uh, tell us that they were. So it's definitely been really interesting to do and uh, giving a good look at his progression and just the, you know, his development from year one to year two, and also a good look at what his, 
truly best and worst games were, uh, regardless of what the stats and highlights say. So let's do an example, Michael, so that everybody can get an idea of exactly how this works because they can hear you describe the project. But I think if you do one game, they'll really understand exactly how you went about doing this. So let's pick a game that was right in the middle so we get a baseline understanding. And as we go through, we'll take a look at the best games. We'll take a look at the worst games. But I want to start by taking a look at a middle-of-the-pack game because I think that's the easiest way to get an intro into how this works. So which game would you say fits that the best? Which game of the 26 starts would be right around the middle of the pack for Darnold and why? So of the ones that I've done so far, of the 22 out of 26, I haven't done his first four rookie year games yet. The one that comes closest to a 50 grade is a 49 that he got in the game at home against the Miami Dolphins in uh, week 14 of this season uh, in his in, against the Dolphins at home uh, in week 14 of 2019. I gave him a 49 for that game. So uh, to kind of break down how we arrived at that number or how I arrived at that number, uh, his ratio of positive to negative plays, and that's another thing I track for all these games, his ratio of positive to negative plays, which is basically a measure of his consistency, was below average in this game. I gave him a 1.23 uh, ratio positive to negative play, 16 positive, 13 negative. Uh, his average of, all, of the games I've done is 1.9. So that's below average. His consistency wasn't that good. But where he makes up some value is the fact that uh, his average positive play I scored at about a 6.2, which is very high. Usually it's a, about 5.9. So comparatively, that is pretty high versus the rest of these games. So uh, really, the point is that even though he wasn't very consistent in that game, his best plays were really good, and that added some more value. Uh, he made a handful of really good plays in that game. He had a great deep ball to Robbie Anderson, uh, a good fade to Demarius Thomas for a touchdown, uh, a couple nice scramble plays. So uh, his best plays in that game were really good, and that kind of made up for the fact that his consistency is below average. Uh, but also on the other side, his mistakes in this game uh, were uh, – well, it was one of his worst games in terms of his mistakes being pretty bad. He had an interception that he pro probably shouldn't have thrown across the field uh, under some pressure, and he had a, a few throws that were, uh, especially to Robbie Anderson, a couple throws uh, deep outside to the left that he missed on, uh, wide open throws with not that much pressure. So those are definitely big knocks on him in terms of the score. So uh, this was a really volatile performance from him. His consistency wasn't that great. He makes up for it with uh, some big plays, uh, really good high points in this game. But on the other side, he did also have uh, some low, low points. So this was about as you know up and down of a performance as he's had in his career, but ultimately the score checks out at very slightly below average, a 49. But when obviously when you do adjust it, playing at home against a really bad Miami defense, it wasn't you know quite as close to average considering the opponent, but uh, really overall below average consistency makes up for it with some big plays, but also adds some down plays as well. So all those things come into uh, come into play: his consistency, his uh, how high were his high points because being consistent is one thing, but if you're the good plays you're making are just you checking the ball down, not really having to mitigate pressure or throw into tight windows that much, then you're not getting all too, all too many points for that. You know, you'll get good credit for that, but a truly elite performance comes from when the quarterback has to uh, mitigate his surroundings, make great throws into tight windows, uh, make really good throws down the field uh, when the coverage is tight, you know, make up for pressure, having to scramble and make things happen. Uh, that's when, you know, especially for Darnold, uh, his best performances have been when things around him have been clicking all that much, uh, but he's been able to make things happen uh, regardless of how much he's being helped out. So, 
you know, the explosiveness of the positive plays matters and also the negative plays because, you know, you can be inconsistent, but uh, if you're down plays and the, this is what happened in the Baltimore game specifically a couple weeks ago, uh, he wasn't incredibly consistent in that game, but his mistakes weren't all that weren't all that egregious because most of the time there really was not anywhere to go. The pressure was constant. The throws he were missing, you know, there were throws you could hit, but there were throws I weren't knocking him for that much because they were extremely difficult. The Baltimore was really blanketing the Jets receivers in that game. So the throws were into tight windows. The pressure was really good uh, by the Baltimore defense against the Jets offensive line. So uh, this Miami game, I think, comes the closest. Just high, high points, low, low points, checks out. Uh, about middle of the pack when you combine those two things together. So there are so many different factors that go into it, and you combine all these things, consistency, the high points, the low points. Uh, So it's really cool to do this, and I think there are a lot of uh, very interesting takeaways we'll get out of it. And we're going to go through it in depth, little bits and pieces each week. We're going to mix it into the Chronicles of Nania. So don't you worry. You're going to have plenty of Sam Darnold talk this offseason. He is still the straw that stirs the drink for Jets fans, and with good reason. There's a lot of exciting potential there. Hopefully in year three, he makes that leap that we all wanted to see in year number two, but there were improvements in year number two from year number one, and Michael will document them as we go through the Sam Darnold project over the next bunch of weeks. Michael, thanks again for coming on for Chronicles, as always. A blast. What do you got cooking over in the 955 websites that you're writing for right now? Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to continuing on here with the Sam Darnold series. So many cool things uh, to talk about the numbers that, you know, I came up with these games just from grading them uh, game by game, play by play. A lot of really cool takeaways. And and like you said, there were a lot of positives uh, out of the season from Sam Darnold. Not quite the huge leap that we hoped for, but it, there were a lot of signs of progress uh, in very important ways. So it'll be fun to talk about those. And uh, really just everywhere. Again, I always tweet out my stuff, tweet out the links. Uh, on Twitter every every single day whenever I post something out, but uh, free agent stuff, a lot of free agent breakdowns coming in, and uh, really just a lot of miscellaneous Jets stat breakdowns. I did the blocking tight end stuff. Uh, should have some special team stuff coming out soon. Uh, Nathan Shepard is a guy who I'm probably going to do some uh, writing on going forward, so really a lot of miscellaneous stat stuff and just um, uh, a lot of unheralded positives and negatives from the Jets in 2019, but uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about the Darnold series on here. That, that's that been a lot of fun to do. So to talk about, it, it's going to be great. Absolutely. As I said, he is the straw that stirs the drink. And there were a lot of exciting moments in both his rookie season and especially in 2019. So a lot to break down over the next few weeks. And we'll have plenty of other things to talk about as well. Things that Michael will cover in the places that he's writing. So make sure you follow him on Twitter at Michael underscore Nania. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and Turn on the Jets.com.